The Guardian. It seems wonderful to me that nobody should have made any sign in my behalf. But none was made, and I became, at ten years old, a little labouring hind in the service of Murdstone and Grinby. London is the city which dominates Charles Dickens' favourite and most autobiographical novel, David Copperfield. It's the place where he lived for much of his life, and many of his haunts are still here for us to explore. I'm John Henley, and in this podcast walk, we'll be following a route through some of the key sites of David Copperfield and of Dickens' own life. We'll start at Victoria Embankment Gardens and finish close to Covent Garden. The tour is designed to be taken on location as a guided walk, and it should work in real time. There's also a map you can download to ensure you don't get out of sync. If you're listening at home, the podcast should work as a documentary in its own right. But if you are walking with us, make your way now to Embankment Tube. Walk up Villiers Street and turn right into Embankment Gardens. Head towards the back of the gardens and you will see the York Watergate. So here we are in the gardens of Victoria Embankment, looking at this magnificent, slightly weather-beaten structure with steps leading down, columns behind. It's the York Watergate, probably dates from the 1620s. I'm here with the Dickens fan and publishing director of Penguin Press, Simon Winder, who's going to be our guide on this walk. So, Simon, can you locate this place for us through the eyes of Charles Dickens? Well, Dickens would have seen this amazing mouldering gate when he was only 12 years old and he was working around the corner from here. What's extraordinary about Embankment Gardens is that they didn't exist when Dickens was living here. He wrote about them in the 1860s when the gardens were being built. And what's poignant about the gate is the way that it's all that's left of this enormous series of structures which did then mark the edge of the river. The river in Dickens's time was far, far wider and all these gardens have been put in and the whole place embanked in a way which he would have been amazed by as a child. So the steps actually led down to the water? Yes, it was literally a water gate. The Duke of Buckingham had it built in the 1620s by uh, Balthazar Gerbier and behind here was a series of aristocratic palaces, in, in this case York House, which dominated this whole stretch, which moulded into non-existence by the end of the 17th century as all these people became bankrupt and became the site of this enormous development called the Adelphi, um, which clung to the edge of the high bank along the side of the Strand. The Strand, of course, meaning like the, the riverside. The, the, the beach. Yes, the beach. It, yeah. uh, it's very difficult to see now just how extremely deep the embanking of the river was. And so all these buildings are, are sort of clinging to its side. Quite a feat of engineering, actually. Huge feat of engineering. And so the Adelphi, a lot of it's now been knocked down, but in the basement of the buildings there, they're filled with these enormously tall arches, which fronted onto the river and which were filled with thousands and thousands of barrels of wine and beer and warehouses and warehouses of all kinds and so ships would come up the river dump their things here and and there was a whole in effect of homeless community living at the back there and uh, Dickens himself used to visit them and wander around there as a child and he gets David Copfield to do the same thing. Um, 
and, and the river, I mean, the river, I suppose, was a much more vital part of London life in, in those days. I mean, a really an important sort of transport yes, artery. Yes, it was a much slower river, which is why it would tended to freeze over. I mean, one of the reasons it was embanked was to speed up the pace of the river so it wouldn't freeze anymore. But also, yes, it was a mass of tiny boats. And this whole area was incredibly insalubrious, um, but characterful in a way which we can't really understand anymore except probably through David Copperfield which is in effect a great hymn to this part of the river. So very much a kind of a London microcosm and this this kind of feeling of, of immense wealth and terrible poverty cohabiting practically next door yes, to each other. Yes, it's probably not an exaggeration to say that this is where Dickens got his education, very unwillingly got his education and what made him a great writer is this little stretch along here. <laughs> it's extraordinary to think that um, the whole place remains such a sort of ghost town of uh, bits and pieces which you can still see even though other bits are completely changed. Wonderful. Okay, well, let's walk on. Let's head out now of the gardens onto the foot of Villiers Street. And as we're going, we'll hear David Copperfield's description of the area. Murdstone and Grinby's warehouse was at the waterside. Modern improvements have altered the place, but it was the last house at the bottom of a narrow street curving downhill to the river with some stairs at the end where people took boat. My working place was established in a corner of the warehouse. No words can express the secret agony of my soul as I sunk into this companionship. The deep remembrance of the sense I had of being utterly without hope now, of the shame I felt in my position, of the misery it was to my young heart to believe that day by day what I had learned and thought and delighted in and raised my fancy and my emulation up by would pass away from me, little by little, never to be brought back any more, cannot be written. So here we are then on Villiers Street. We've come out of the gardens and we're standing opposite a, uh, a big, heavy, square, black, marble-clad building, actually the, the Price Waterhouse Cooper's building. There's Embankment Tube Station to our left and beyond it you can see the sort of white suspension wires of the Golden Jubilee bridges that are clinging to the, the carcass of the old Hungerford Bridge. Simon, tell us a little bit more about where we are now. Well, Hungerford Bridge is one of these uh, most unsung of London bridges. It's, it's always a temporary structure which somehow survived all kinds of enormities. It's interesting because it's called Hungerford Bridge, it's the only trace left of the fact that it was a bridge to Hungerford Market, which is, is on the site of what's now the Price Waterhouse Cooper building, which was a, a large miscellaneous market with all kinds of warren of small shops and things underneath it, many of which uh, have been reincarnated in various ways, which is one of the nice things about Villiers Street. It's still the same kind of somewhat scrappy place that people walk through en route to somewhere else and pick up a sandwich and get their keys fixed or whatever. Yeah. Um, but this was the site of Dickens's employment in the blacking factory when he was aged 12, huh. um, which was a terrible thing that essentially made Dickens who he was in many ways. But this great, terrible humiliation of his father, who was an incompetent man with money, forcing his son to, in effect, earn money at that age in this factory uh, on the waterfront. Truly um, a, a formative experience. Absolutely. I mean, he was there for about a year. And uh, in David Copperfield, he relocates it to Blackfriars. But um, this is the actual site buried under this uh, corporate behemoth. Young David 
is sent to work in Murdstone and Grimby, the wonderfully named <laughs> company that he has to work in uh, in the novel. It was the, the nadir, I suppose, of Dickens's life and uh, something which he was both ashamed of and, and proud of in an odd combination. And in the novel, of course, this is where he first meets Mr. Micawber, um, ah, yeah. who comes effectively in, in a way to rescue him. And what's painful, I suppose, about Mr. Micawber and the wonderful Mrs. Micawber is they're kind of based on his own parent. They're sort of benign versions of his father and a kind of helpless version of his mother, uh, both trying to make ends meet. And I can't help thinking he had much harsher feelings about his father than he does about Mr. Micawber in the book. <laughs> OK, so now then we're going to walk up Villiers Street and turn right into John Adams Street. Then we'll turn right again into Buckingham Street. As we walk, Simon, could you just tell us a little bit about the original names of these streets? Because they're quite interesting, aren't they? Yeah, these little streets are a curious amalgam of bits and pieces. When the Dukes of Buckingham eventually became bankrupt, they had to sell all this land. One of them had this fun idea that to commemorate their having been here, that the streets should be named after them. And so a couple of them have had their names changed. But basically, uh, if you look on the map, it still says George Villiers, Duke of Buckingham uh, on the streets, uh, including marvellously little Of Alley, which has humorously been renamed York Place. So here we are in Buckingham Street, another key David Copperfield location. We're outside a, a rather nondescript sort of modern office building now, number 1516. Simon, can you set the scene for us a little bit? Well, this marvellous street is a, a mass of very old houses. The young Dickens lived here when he was a journalist. And in one of the great scenes, uh, he describes David settling into his tiny flat in one of these houses here, which, again, you have to imagine as being very close to the river and not uh, a long way away as they are at the moment. And Dickens himself then lived at number 15. How, what stage of, in his life was He was uh, working then as a reporter. His family moved around all over the place, all over North London, Camden Town and so on. He tried to settle down here and had a couple of addresses around here. He, he stayed nowhere long. OK. And of course, I mean, a lot of other famous, famous London people lived here as well, didn't they? Yes, it's a curious street. You've got Samuel Pepys. Um, Peter the Great apparently stayed in this street. There's all kinds of people who have been here. I mean, I think it's always been sort of posh but decaying in a fairly consistent way, I think. OK. <laughs> well, right. Now, we're going to head back up Buckingham Street, um, left again along John Adams Street and onto Villiers Street, where now we're going to turn right. We'll walk right up to the top of Villiers Street to where it meets the Strand and pause at the steps outside Charing Cross Station on our left. And while we walk, let's listen to one of the highlights of David's time in Buckingham Street. These are the preparations for his first party, which require the cooperation of Mrs Krupp, his landlady. 
It was a wonderfully fine thing to let myself in and out, to come and go without a word to anyone, and to ring Mrs. Crupp up gasping from the depths of the earth when I wanted her and when she was disposed to come. It occurred to me that I really ought to have a little housewarming and that there never could be a better opportunity. I had a new pride in my rooms and burned with a desire to develop their utmost resources. I rang for Mrs. Crupp and acquainted her with my desperate design. I acted on Mrs. Crupp's opinion and gave the order at the pastry cooks myself. These preparations happily completed, I bought a little dessert in Covent Garden Market and gave a rather extensive order at a retail wine merchant's in that vicinity. When I came home in the afternoon and saw the bottles drawn up in a square on the pantry floor, they looked so numerous, though there were two missing, which made Mrs. Crupp very uncomfortable, that I was absolutely frightened at them. So, hopefully you're with us now on the junction of Villiers Street and the Strand, just outside Charing Cross Station. And if you look left, beyond South Africa House, which is the kind of wedge-shaped building to your left, you can just see the very edge of Trafalgar Square and you can see Nelson's column at the top there. Uh, what was there in Dickens' time, Simon? Well, this is very hard to imagine because uh, Charing Cross has always been one of the key areas of London. But what was now Trafalgar Square was like a mass of, in effect, coaching buildings and all kinds of bits and bobs attached to Whitehall Palace. And Golden Cross Inn was one of the key elements in it, which was where, if you were coming up to London, that's where you tended to stay. There's a fabulous scene in David Copperfield which uh, describes this process. And what about the Strand itself? What would, what would that have been like? Well, the Strand's always been this incredibly important London street, uh, connecting the world of court and royalty in Westminster with the money in the city of London. And everybody used to go up and down this street, and they kind of still do. Dickens' experience of London as a child would have been going backs and forwards across the Strand. And again, in Copperfield, he talks about the Strand as being this you know, very important like, sort of artery filled with all kinds of places to eat and drink, lots of theatres. Um, and it led, of course, towards... The Adelphi. Which, funnily enough, is where we're heading next. So we're going to cross over here, take care crossing the Strand. It's a very busy road. And turn right or east along the Strand until we reach the outside of the Adelphi Theatre, a couple hundred yards or so. And as we go, we're going to hear David's experience at the Golden Cross Inn. We went to the Golden Cross at Charing Cross, then a mouldy sort of establishment in a close neighbourhood. A waiter showed me into the coffee room, and a chambermaid introduced me to my small bedchamber, which smelt like a hackney coach and was shut up like a family vault. I was still painfully conscious of my youth, for nobody stood in any awe of me at all, the chambermaid being utterly indifferent to my opinions on any subject and the waiter being familiar with me, and offering advice to my inexperience. Well now, said the waiter, in a tone of confidence, what would you like for dinner? Young gentleman likes poultry in general. 
have a fowl. I told him, as majestically as I could, that I wasn't in the humour for a fowl. Ain't you? said the waiter. Young gentleman is generally tired of beef and mutton. Have a wheel cutlet. I assented to this proposal, in default of being able to suggest anything else. Do you care for taters? said the waiter, with an insinuating smile and his head on one side. Young gentleman generally has been overdosed with taters. I commanded him in my deepest voice to order a veal cutlet and potatoes and all things fitting, and to inquire at the bar if there were any letters for Trotwood Copperfield Esquire, which I knew there were not and couldn't be, but thought it manly to appear to expect. He soon came back to say that there were none, at which I was much surprised, and began to lay the cloth for my dinner in a box by the fire. While he was so engaged, he asked me what I would take with it, and on my replying, half a pint of sherry, thought it a favourable opportunity, I am afraid, to extract that measure of wine from the stale leavings at the bottom of several small decanters. I am of this opinion, because, while I was reading the newspaper, I observed him, behind a low wooden partition, which was his private apartment, very busy, pouring out of a number of those vessels into one, like a chemist and druggist, making up a prescription. When the wine came, too, I thought it flat, and it certainly had more English crumbs in it than were to be expected in a foreign wine, in anything like a pure state. But I was bashful enough to drink it and say nothing. So here we are then outside the Adelphi Theatre. And Simon, I mean, this area was really the heart of, of what Charles Dickens loved, wasn't it? Yes, he must, have, he must have spent a large part of his life crisscrossing this set of streets around here. And the Strand's filled with fun stuff. I think we just walked past uh, the old British Medical Association, which is now called Zimbabwe House. And if you look up, you can see what were great statues by Eric Gill, which were commissioned when Zimbabwe House was the Medical Association, and which, when they were unveiled, they were viewed as so rude that they were <laughs> immediately mutilated by men with hammers. Um, <laughs> but they were too mean or whatever to uh, replace and them. And they've stayed so like that ever since. This ancient so piece of uh, doctor's philistinism is still <laughs> available to us. But here we are in front of the Adelphi Theatre, which has been rebuilt several times, but this was... Dickens absolutely adored this place and he would come here dozens and dozens of times and often he would spend all his money effectively on coming here. When his novels really got underway they would have totally unlicensed dramatisations of them here and sometimes they oh, would... Really? Uh, so he had nothing to do with them, no, just was ripping, no ripping no him off basically. Yeah, yeah. No, there was no copyright or whatever so, so he would come along and sometimes they would actually add on some endings before he'd actually finished writing the book which he's always curious to see. Of course because he published in instalments all yes. the time. Yes, so something like Nicholas Nickleby which was a huge success they were busy showing whatever they could of it and then putting on an ending Tagging uh, as on best they could. Kind of <laughs> they didn't want to wait till the whole thing was over. This was the beginnings of his, of his real fascination with the theatre? Yes, and or... I think this was where he, he had a parallel part of himself which really wanted to be an actor rather than a writer. And he even actually auditioned to become an actor at one point. And it's marvellous, for example, here we are today, James Corden's One Man, Two Governors is on, which is exactly the kind of like the happy-go-lucky, silly farce which Dickens himself would actually have loved himself so it's, it's great that the same kind of thing's happening at the Adelphi today. It's still very appropriate. Right now we're going to turn around facing back towards Trafalgar Square 
but this time we're going to turn right up Exchange Court, which is very easy to miss. It's a tiny little alleyway just past the Adelphi Theatre. At the end of the alley, turn right onto Maiden Lane and then pause outside Rules Restaurant on your left. And as we're walking, we're going to catch up with David Copperfield and his friends visiting the Adelphi, having had rather too much to drink. Somebody said to me, let's go to the theatre, Copperfield. There was no bedroom before me, but again the jingling table covered with glasses, the lamp, Granger on my right hand, Markham on my left, and Steerforth opposite, all sitting in a mist and a long way off. The theatre, to be sure, the very thing. Come along! But they must excuse me if I saw everybody out first and turned the lamp off in case of fire. Owing to some confusion in the dark, the door was gone. I was feeling for it in the window curtains when Steerforth, laughing, took me by the arm and led me out. We went downstairs, one behind another. Near the bottom, somebody fell and rolled down. Somebody else said it was Copperfield. I was angry at that false report until, finding myself on my back in the passage, I began to think there might be some foundation in it. Shortly afterwards, we were very high up in a very hot theatre, looking down into a large pit that seemed to me to smoke. The people with whom it was crammed were so indistinct. There was a great stage too, looking very clean and smooth after the streets. And there were people upon it, talking about something or other, but not at all intelligibly. There was an abundance of bright lights and there was music and there were ladies down in the boxes, and I don't know what more. The whole building looked to me as if it were learning to swim. It conducted itself in such an unaccountable manner when I tried to steady it. On somebody's motion, we resolved to go downstairs to the dress boxes where the ladies were. Then I was being ushered into one of these boxes and found myself saying something as I sat down and people about me crying, silence to somebody and ladies casting indignant glances at me. And what? Yes, Agnes, sitting on the seat before me, in the same box, with a lady and gentleman beside her, whom I didn't know. I see her face now, better than I did then, I dare say, with its indelible look of regret and wonder turned upon me. So here we are outside Rule's uh, restaurant then. Um, just before we talk about that, Simon, that was a quite extraordinary little alleyway we walked up. Yeah, all these alleys are just fantastic. I mean, they really are unchanged. And they, I think they probably smell roughly the same as they did in Dickens <laughs> this time too, which is fantastic. And I always try and go up a different one of these alleys because they all have their own kind of strange character. And as you'll notice, you're walking uphill when you go up them because, you're, again, you're walking up another part of the old riverbank mm. in order to get up here uh, to this pretty much unchanged street, Maiden Lane, which looks I mean, pretty much exactly as it did uh, in Dickens' time. Hmm. And tell us a little bit about, uh, about Rules then. What are the secrets within its walls? Oh, well, this was uh, Dickens' great hangout. He had a reserved table here, and there's still a room upstairs filled with like theatrical memorabilia from Dickens' time. So he could just turn up and always get, get his table guaranteed. And it's a London's oldest restaurant from 1798, and it's a brilliant place. And what's extraordinary about it is so Dickens would be sitting here looking out the window, and just the next street down, Chandos Street, he could actually see the relocated blacking factory where he worked the latter part of his 
servitude at the age of 12. So you could be sitting here having some delicious like champagne or whatever and actually looking down the ro- road at the Chandos Blacking Factory. reflecting on how far he'd come. <laughs> very bizarre, very bizarre. <laughs> OK, so we'll head on now to our final stop on this tour, the Lamb and Flag pub. We're going to head back down Maiden Lane, past Exchange Court, and turn right onto Bedford Street. Follow the road as it becomes Garrick Street and enter Rose Street on the right-hand side. And as we walk, let's hear the young David Copperfield celebrate his birthday with a drink, most likely at the Lamb and Flag. When I had money enough, I used to get half a pint of ready-made coffee and a slice of bread and butter. When I had none, I used to look at a venison shop in Fleet Street. Or I have strolled at such a time as far as Covent Garden Market and stared at the pineapples. I was fond of wandering about the Adelphi because it was a mysterious place with those dark arches. I see myself emerging one evening from some of these arches on a little public house close to the river with an open space before it, where some coal heavers were dancing, to look at whom I sat down upon a bench. I wonder what they thought of me. I was such a child and so little that frequently when I went into the bar of a strange public house for a glass of ale or porter to moisten what I had had for dinner, they were afraid to give it to me. I remember one hot evening I went into the bar of a public house and said to the landlord, What is your best, your very best, ale a glass? For it was a special occasion. I don't know what. It may have been my birthday. Tuppence halfpenny, says the landlord, is the price of the genuine stunning ale. Then, says I, producing the money, just draw me a glass of the genuine stunning, if you please, with a good head to it. The landlord looked at me in return over the bar, from head to foot, with a strange smile on his face, and instead of drawing the beer, looked round the screen and said something to his wife. She came out from behind it with her work in her hand, and joined him in surveying me. Here we stand, all three before me now, the landlord in his shirt sleeves, leaning against the bar window frame, his wife looking over the little half door, and I in some confusion, looking up at them from outside the partition. They asked me a good many questions, as what my name was, how old I was, where I lived, how I was employed, and how I came there. To all of which, that I might commit nobody, I invented, I'm afraid, appropriate answers. They served me with the ale, though I suspect it was not the genuine stunning, and the landlord's wife, opening the little half-door of the bar and bending down, gave me my money back and gave me a kiss that was half-admiring and half-compassionate.
So here we are then at what is probably the pub that was just described by Dickens right there, uh, the Lamb and Flag, and it's the last stop on our tour. It's a pretty historic watering hole, isn't it, Simon? In fact, there's a, there's a plaque outside, very intriguingly, saying that in 1679, the poet John Dryden was very nearly done to death on this very spot by rogues hired by the Earl of Rochester. But Dickens used to drink here too, didn't he? Yes, I mean, to be fair, I think Dickens drank everywhere, but he did... <laughs> He did love the lamb and flag, and I think one of the great things about him is the way that he, even though he's staggeringly hard-working, he was always so convivial, and you can see where he got his material from. It was just an endless human curiosity, hanging around with people and chatting day in, day out when he wasn't working. And the rest of this sort of immediate area, very significant for Oh, him yes, too. I mean, he was all over the place here. I mean, the Garrick Club's just opposite where he was a member off and on. He resigned in a huff at various points. And then over in Wellington Street was the offices of the main magazines he worked on, which again is a, an aspect of his work which is forgotten now mainly, but he would spend as much time really writing for all the year round and other publications as he did writing his own novels. And it was part of this sort of demon of energy that he would churn out these endless pieces on social issues, what he thought about London. And some of his best pieces actually are, are short essays, like night walks, about London life. OK, well, that's the end of the podcast, strictly speaking. But, Simon, I mean, there are a great many other locations, aren't there, in London that are relevant to David Copperfield and to Charles Dickens that we just haven't really had time for. Could you give us an idea of, of maybe where listeners could go to continue their journeys if they're interested? Well, I mean, there's so many favourites. But I mean, one heartbreaking one for me is if you go down towards Temple Tube, down Surrey Street, there's a little grating on the right as you go down Surrey Street, which, if it's open, you can go in and you're in this weird twilight world of Strand Lane, which is a genuine street. And in there is this place called the Roman Bath, which I think is probably London's most low-octane tourist attraction. Um, <laughs> it's simply a glass window, and you press a little light, and it's a National Trust property of an like, incredibly marginal kind. But if you press the little light, you can see there's a little bath in there, which probably is, in fact, Tudor rather than Roman. It's where the young Dickens used to go and wash. And he has David Copperfield again, goes to wash there. And there's something very poignant about it because it's incredibly boring in itself. And yet the idea that there's the 12-year-old Dickens washing himself off after going to the blacking factory and it's still there is rather remarkable, I think. Well, that really is it for this podcast walk then. Thanks very much to Simon Winder. The Charles Dickens extracts you've been hearing were read by Michael Tate. Producer was Ian Chambers. I'm John Henley and thank you very much for listening. great downloads go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio